Today on Semi-Intellectual Musings, even though he needs to stay close to home, Matt is back. We scratch the surface of political music and protest songs from Leadbelly to Curtis Mayfield. And we consider ourselves to be two very fortunate sons. Woman, woman, tell me your name. Let me have my life reclaimed. I don't know if I've been keeping them. <laughs> you I, think, have. I think I've been getting rid of them. Uh, we might have to do that. Make that uh, like celebration of our 25th episode or something like this. Oh, our 25th will be coming up. Actually, our 20th will come up before the 25th. Yeah, that's usually how numbers work, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to be back, man. Yeah, uh, it's it was nice really. It's, uh, it's been like a while since we've. Uh, it seems like it. Yeah. yeah, and I was like uh, last night when I was working up the notes, I was like, oh, I'm just getting all like excited listening to all the music that we're going to play for everyone today. Yeah, um, but it was cool to uh, to uh, hear Aaron on the podcast. Yeah, a, uh, big thank you to Aaron. Uh, you filled in admirably. I think I left a comment somewhere that uh, he had very small shoes to fill, but he did so admirably. So uh, yeah, I really enjoyed uh, his conversation. He's guy, smart guy. Eh? He is. He's. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've said this uh, to him. I've probably said it to you. Uh, mm-hmm. I've said it to everyone who I know. Uh, he's probably one of the smartest people I know, like including lots of profs that I've had dealings with. And, you know, he, um, he, he, he's a tall, it's a tall order when mm-hmm. you talk to him. Yeah. I, um, I kind of feel the same way about Evan. Um, yeah, like yeah. I knew that going in, I'm like, oh, wait till Phil gets a hold of this guy. Cause he's so young, but he's like, like really smart. And I've said the same thing about Evan. He's like him and, um, one other friend of mine, uh, Davis, if you're listening, <laughs> shout out to you. You're a really smart guy too. Yeah. Um, but I've said that to a number of people. Like these are two of the smartest people I know, but they're so young. They're both like 22. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, um, and I was also surprised, uh, like, it, like, honestly, I, I had no idea. I assumed so that Mel was a genius as well. Like I would expect nothing less, but, <laughs> uh, wow, she's, uh, she's right up there as well. She is definitely. And it's funny that we have like the first three guests we have are like three of the smartest people we know. Yeah, that yeah. that is very true. There's some academic honesty for you. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. I'm uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, what Aaron has put together for us. It's um, you know, it's four maybe five episodes. Kind of follows the same sort of theme throughout. Looking at different things, um, he sent me some notes. You know, Matt, when uh, you send me notes, it's one or two pages. Mm-hmm. When Aaron sends me notes, I think he's up to seventy. Uh, it's like all the background research to it. It's, oh, wow. uh, I think it's snippets from something that he's been working on for his postdoc and it, uh, you know, it's in depth. And then right in the middle, I just see like this four pager on Fargo and I'm just excited. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's going to be the next episode with him about the wolf. And, uh, we're going to get into talking about Fargo a bit more. So is Fargo going to be like the, um, the key example? So if anyone's listening and they haven't like had a chance to watch Fargo, is it worth like maybe checking out even a few episodes? Uh, you know, it might be, um, it's going to be for sure one example amongst, uh, several. I think we're going to return to The Walking Dead like we did last episode uh, a little bit. Uh, but the imagery of the wolf is really powerful in Fargo and it's kind of right in your face. So we kind of go back to uh, uh, season two of Fargo uh, and he hasn't seen season three, but, um, you know, a little bit of a spoiler. Uh, I'm going to uh, play a couple clips from season three while uh, we're podcasting together. 
uh it's gonna be fun it's that gonna be real podcasting fun. with uh with Aaron, not, with Aaron, not yeah. right now. Okay, because no, 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 I'm no, like, no, how no, is right he going to connect this to uh, to right protest now. songs no, through the ages? So um, yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing what the how the series sort of evolves. Is like the Aaron uh, Aaron Henry series. Well, yeah. that's it. Like we brought him in as a uh, special co-host, uh, but he came in kind of prepared, ready to do a whole mini series. So it's going to turn into like our summer, our first summer mini series, which is uh, fantastic. You know, it's it's something really special to be able to have him willing to come on uh prepared with really kind of really interesting stuff yeah and hopefully this um like this podcast was intended for us to be kind of an avenue to i don't know maybe write and and teach and whatnot uh hopefully it's the same thing for aaron as well so hopefully this like inspires him to write even more things because i know he's also published and he's um he publishes outside of academia as well yeah he has one in the montreal literary review magazine um really really kind of interesting piece on scrappers and um like people who pick up scrap well he kind of yeah like i don't or whatever you know i think uh i'll get into it with him a little bit yeah ask him about it because i'd be interested to hear more i saw it um posted on our our fan page yeah um and uh yeah it's just that with that guy though there's so many uh rabbit holes to go down and uh you almost have to hold on so you also did an admirable job of uh returning to and explaining some stuff so um yeah i really enjoyed the episode so well, enough about that. Yeah. How have you been, Matt? Uh, good. Um, my wife is, uh, you know, still pregnant and, uh, I'm in the mode now where I'm like afraid to be away from her for too long Yeah. and, or be too far away, Yeah. you know? So, um, we're both ready. Um, we had the baby shower. Thank you again for coming, you and your wife, uh, coming and all our friends, uh, who came. Um, that was a lot of fun. We, uh, we went yeah, to a was. club. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, it's um, it's just basically that. Like I'm, uh, I'm in the mindset. Um, it's funny. I I was sick, like um, like on the last episode, basically. Um, and then afterwards, I had it just sort of stuck, like a like a clench in my stomach. And um, a few nights ago, Mel Mel, my wife, um, said, "Oh, I think you're just stressed." Yeah. Like, and then like the clinch in my stomach just like unwound <laughs> and Ooh. I was like, oh, and That's it felt it so good. Yeah. And it took me like a day to kind of unstress, but, um, I feel fantastic now. Yeah. Great. Yeah. yeah was... You're looking a bit better. You're a little white and green last time you were here. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I hope Aaron didn't catch anything off of this mic. <laughs> well, well, I got we'll you. see. We'll, we'll see, see if that uh, <laughs> summer series is delayed a little bit. Yeah, we'll see. Um, so I understand that you're, uh, you're back into your own summer swing. You're back into the research. So yeah. give us a give us all an update. Well, I think this is my first full week of not going into an office. Uh, it's a little weird. I find myself uh, finding things to do around the house. Um, you know, things that need to get done, but probably not right away. And my approach is that it needs to get done right away. Mm. So a little bit of procrastination, but I have made uh, some good uh, some good headway on some of the stuff I've been working on. Um, so. Yeah, it's feeling pretty good. It's a little weird to send Mel off, my Mel, uh, every morning and not leave with her. Like we kind of got into a routine where we'd mm-hmm. get ready together and then leave together. So, you know, staying behind is, uh, I don't know, it's 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 a new new era. The, the house is empty and uh, it's quiet. The house you know? is empty and quiet during yeah. the day. So you got to like immediately throw music on, man, or uh, yeah. or put me on speakerphone. I'll uh, let my gentle uh, 
voice lull you into a state of complacency. Oh, I don't know what that means. <laughs> um, but also, um, sometimes when you think you're procrastinating, it's really just you getting your head around like the enormity of what you're about to undertake, which is a dissertation and yeah. comps as well, because they do comps in sociology. Yeah, Carlton. Um, so, like, where are you at? Like, what are you doing, like, right now? Like, uh, Well, right now I'm trying to put together um, a, a chapter which basically looks at different ways that uh, historical epistemologies and ontologies have been uh, looked at. So basically, what do we pay attention to when we do historical work? And uh, how do we put those things together to form knowledge? So the ontology being the objects of analysis, the epistemology being the system of knowledge that allows us to understand those objects. I really wish I had that sort of definition. Can you just repeat that one more time? Because that was the simplest definition I've ever heard of the two. I was about to ask you to explain. Right. Uh, So like ontology are the objects that we pay attention to. So like our ontological environments are composed of social relations, material objects. Thoughts. Thoughts. Um, But, you know, that can also be expanded to to things that we cannot see. So maybe atoms, energy. Mm -hmm. And our ontological world uh, has historically changed. Things uh, are there in view and then things kind of disappear or they reemerge in different ways. Um, So that's ontology. Epistemology is the systems of knowledge or the ways that we make sense of those things. Um, So if we think of a time when the ontology was that the world is flat, um, Mm. your ontological makeup is that it's, I don't know, like a cube or like a piece of paper. Uh, Your system of knowledge then is that uh, there's a void. There's matter and a void, and you can fall into the void if you're not on matter. Um, so those, the, you know, epistemologies and ontologies go together. They have uh, really interesting histories. So I'm trying to put together a chapter that looks at ways uh, that those have changed. So what uh, theorists or important works influenced um, the way that ontologies and epistemologies have changed in sociology and historical work and philosophy uh, those sorts of things. Um, how far back in time are you going to go with this? Because it seems like it's a theoretical section, but it's also a historical, like historical yeah. theoretical section. So I mean, this is, sounds like a comp or something. Yeah, like, it, it, it or could. Or it should be. Or, yeah. Or works towards. Um, how far back am I going? That's, that's an interesting one. I think uh, I'm going to start kind of with uh, the pathological and the normal. Um, and it's kind of like a way of doing historical sociology or historical studies comes from France from, um, you know, Foucault has a, has a marvelous uh, introduction into Kegian's uh, pathological and normal. Uh, then I'll probably move into historical ontologies with Ian Hacking uh, mm-hmm. and look at uh, how Ian Hacking kind of addresses the question. I'll skirt around uh, genealogy, which is another Foucaultian kind of concept. <laughs> and I think, you know... That's wise, yeah. You can uh, only that, have one giant Foucauldian like concept. <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, the groundwork that I'm laying is to show that the debates uh, in science and technology studies and some uh, feminist studies most recently are important to pay attention to. So, you know, historically we've looked at law, we've looked at social relations, and SDS, uh, science and technology studies, has come in and said, well, look at the non-human actors, for one, Um some feminist scholars say, well, you have to look at gender. So those are ontological shifts, mm-hmm. uh, but they carry uh, very important epistemological implications for how we study history. Okay. Remind me to talk about um, like third and fourth wave sort of gender in the next episode. So just uh, remind me, Phil, but um, that sounds fascinating, man. And 
um, I will continue to ask you about it because um, when you know somebody's going to be asking you about it, you tend to, uh, you know, get work done. So you have something to talk about. Yeah. So um, I'm really looking forward to reading that, man. That sounds really fascinating, actually. Yeah. So that's been my kind of light week. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Just like <laughs> tangling with epistemology and ontologies yeah, uh, while basking in the uh, now beautiful weather, man. And uh, I, I still haven't seen the front uh, uh, clover field yet. So it's um, coming in. After this, we'll take a quick peeky poo. Yeah, it's coming in really nice. Uh, yesterday, uh, so procrastination method. Yesterday, yeah. I went out and you know trimmed what needed to be trimmed and re-raked and uh, re-seeded. Uh, and you know, of course, I have to play with uh, the watering timers and the sprinklers that I have. And so anyway, I spent like, you know, four or five hours outside yesterday just messing around <laughs> with that. Awesome. Cut the grass, you know, trimmed uh, all the weeds and all that crap. Yesterday though was like the first perfect day it that was. we've had. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I don't think it's a spoiler for anybody who's in rural Canada right now, but the black flies are gone in mm. our area, which is amazing. Yeah. yeah, that's a godsend. But then they've been replaced by like a cornucopia of other insects as well. Yeah, right? tons. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think... Uh, I don't know what they are. They're like these caterpillars that have descended from mm. the trees. And it, like I'm, I was looking at some yesterday morning having coffee and it was kind of like a slow descent. Like <laughs> it just kind of like slowly comes down and it's, and it comes on this like tiny little thread and then it reaches the deck and it lands. And then it kind of looks at you like, oh shit. <laughs> and then it like scurries away. <laughs> uh, I think those are moths, cali yeah. moth calipers. Yeah, like think, they're all kind of. I think so. Well, it's, um, Another summer filled with insects and nature. So uh, hey, that's uh, that's living out in the country. Why don't you tell the good folks how they can reach us? Uh, if you have questions, comments, concerns, or considerations for us, you can reach us on Twitter at the underscore sim underscore pod. You can email us at semiintellectual at gmail .com. Our website that includes the history of the the shows and uh, the show with Aaron is thesim.podbean.com. We are on iTunes, we are on Stitcher, we are on Google Play, we are on your podcatcher of choice. Uh, please leave us some ratings and reviews. It really helps the show. Uh, recently, since Aaron's episode, we've had lots of good comments, lots of good feedback. Uh, those things are incorporated almost immediately. Yeah, we can see them right in the because we're so new, like bumps like that they uh they really keep us going man it yeah. really helps our confidence so, so we like it thank you for tuning in uh we're gonna be back after a short break and we're gonna get into i think i think the episode that will encapsulate what this podcast is about oh really good to be back good to be back Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. This is Semi-Intellectual Musings, the podcast that looks at social science, humanities, and arts. It is co-hosted by myself, Philip Primo. And Matt Sanderson. On today's episode, Matt and I have prepared what I think is going to become the epitome of what this podcast is about. Uh, today we're going to be looking at protest music, political songs, and what better way to connect the published world than to look at songs that are about the real world. Yeah, for sure. Um, and before we kind of delve into it, I think we're going to do this as a history. We're going to go back to uh, Phil's got 
um, the early stuff, I would say. Um, yep. And I'm uh, going to focus on the 60s and mid-70s. Um, so before we delve into the history of protest music and political music in general, um, I think we should kind of start with some definitions. So for me, protest music is songs that either were intentionally made to either be sung at protest, literally, or songs with literal uh, political messages in them, um, or they're songs that maybe they're gospel songs, which uh, Phil's going to uh, talk to us about, um, that were taken up by various political movements and beca- became their sort of songs of the movement. So um, I think it's uh, helpful look at it that way what do you think yeah and i think like we can start by asking the question like what makes a song what makes a tune uh political or uh how does it become a protest song i think uh not all popular music that speaks to or speaks about current events necessarily is protest music right yeah i like for me i think um uh it's the actors that define it like who is using the music and for what purposes. Um, Because as I say, like sometimes these songs were not intended to be um, political in nature, but for various reasons, which we'll get into, um, they become so. So I think it's really about who defines them and what they are using them for. Yeah, and I think um, like spontaneously, we're thinking of stuff that's a little bit more left-leaning, a little bit more progressive. Maybe, um, you know, we could throw in the word liberal in there, but not as like a nasty bad word. Mm. Um, you know, I don't think that we'd, uh, call something that is advocating for social conservatism, uh, necessarily to be a protest song, but I guess it could be. Yeah. I, I mean, there are songs, um, for the right, you know, like, uh, well, I mean the extreme right Hitler used uh, music right, yeah. in very specific ways, obviously. Um, but also, um, I don't know, you just look at like Donald Trump or whatever. I'm sure they have songs that they sing along to like, that are all about America and patriotism and things. We saw this with Bush. Um, politicians actually, um, they kind of appropriate uh, certain yeah, songs. Absolutely. And as soon as a politician uh, takes a song on for their political campaign, it immediately like becomes lame. Right, yeah. <laughs> and you know, I think you bring up another point, is that even though a tune could be political in nature at the start, it can be co-opted. Mm. And I think we'll get into some examples of those as mm. well. Yeah, so I think... Um, um, that's why d- who defines and how are they defining it and how do those definitions change depending on who is doing the defining. Yeah. Um, and I'll slow down and simmer down. Um, but I think all those things matter. So um, so this is a history, but it's also like a sociocultural history yeah. of like political music. Yeah, I think that's what we wanted. Yeah. So so for me, like I, my mom uh, raised me on like um, anti-war, 60s anti-war uh, music. So what some people call like hippie music. Um, but also a lot of um, strong female uh, vocalists and uh, feminist kind of music because um, I have a, an older sister. So I think she was trying to um, get my sister thinking in these ways. So I was kind of raised on that. And then my dad likes old school um, pro-America like country. <laughs> nice. Um, so it's kind of a, a bit of a contrast. But um, I guess in like, it, when I was in like grade seven and eight, um, that's when like grunge kind of took off. So, yeah. so I was a, kind of a perfect age for that. I was like 13, 14. And then um, the East Coast, West Coast gangster rap um, um, yeah, situation. Yeah. Biggie um, and, yeah. yeah, Biggie, Tupac, and, and, and friends. Um, <laughs> uh, that kind of, that came out when I was in like maybe like grade 10 or so. So they were just like, I was hit with like these two 
really kind of like big change moments in music. And they have very, obviously, very strong political messages. So like I did with books, I sort of went from there and went backwards and tried to like fill my music catalog with all the sort of great music. And I found that I would always gravitate towards uh, music with a social political um, kind of message behind it. Or songs that were socially and politically important at various times. Right, right. Um, My experience, you know, my siblings tend to listen to non or apolitical music, uh, I would think. Although my sister is a huge Prince fan. And I think Prince probably could be defined as someone who had some political songs. Mm. Uh, Prince by his very like embodiment was political. Well, yeah. Yeah, as well. Many ways. Uh, But I listen to a lot of Rage Against the Machine, a lot of uh, System of a Down, uh, so a lot of more like the, the rock, uh, metalcore sort of stuff. That's, that's something I never really got into, especially Rage for some reason. Like I've, I, you hear the songs that everybody knows from Rage Against the Machine, but like I never really got into the Rage. Right. What is it about Rage that, that resonated? Uh, probably a few things. So the political messaging was definitely, um, timely as I was reading <laughs> a lot, uh, of stuff around American imperialism. Um, so like, uh, Gore Vidal, um, was this in like, um, late high school or early university? Like, yeah, were, late high, I would say late high school, probably like, uh, grade 10. So I would have been maybe 14, 15. Um, and it was just kind of, it was trendy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, watching, uh, Seattle protests, 1999. That was, was a big thing of, for me too. Yeah. There was a lot of, uh, kind of like, you know, post, you could call it post grunge, uh, sort of music uh rage was definitely on the scene then kind of like in their their high high point of their career anyway yeah it was also like the time of the sort of i would say like the end of gangster rap as well like um chronic uh, 2001 came out in right, the year yeah. 2000 i believe yeah. um that was huge that was when i was in grade 12 and like i remember listening to it in the library on a disc man yeah and just having my mind blown right yeah. um hearing eminem for the first time yeah uh, um but um that was almost like and as rage, it was almost like the end. And then nine eleven happened, and like we'll talk about this in a future episode yeah. for sure. Like we're not going to go this far in the future, but um, I think nine eleven happened, and then the political messaging and music kind of got curtailed. Like I'm definitely going to talk to everybody about the Dixie Chicks yeah, in a future sure. episode. Absolutely, well. so, yeah, very important. So theory. rather than going way in the future, um, let's go back into the past. So yeah, Phil. Let's do um, it. It's got a whole bunch of music. It goes back into, I don't know, the 20s, but Phil takes Yeah, well, I kind of wanted to uh, lead off with an artist by the name of Huddle William Ledbetter, uh, popularized by the name of Leadbelly. Uh, Leadbelly was born in 1889 in Louisiana. Uh, He died uh, in 1949 at age 60 in New York City. But he led kind of a really interesting uh, artistic career. So um, he would sing gospel music, blues about women, liquor, prison life, uh, racism. He had some folk songs about cowboys, prisons, uh, prison work, sailors, uh, that kind of stuff. He also wrote songs uh, about people uh, such as Roosevelt, uh, Hitler, Harlow, Jack Johnson, uh, the Scarborough Boys, that kind of thing. He, uh, so Led Buddy was uh, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1988 and the Louisiana Music Hall of Fame in 2008. Um, um, when did, uh, sorry, can I just ask, when did he uh, die? Uh, he died in 1949. Oh, so he got into the Hall of Fame in 1988. Yeah. And, and then in the, the Louisiana Music Hall of Fame in 2008. Oh, that's, even, that's somehow even worse. <laughs> uh, now, 
what's interesting uh, about what you just said is that his work has been widely covered um, by a lot of artists that are uh, maybe a bit more well-known than Lead, uh, Lead Belly. So of the likes of Bob Dylan, uh, Brian Wilson, uh, Joni Rivers, uh, Delaney Davidson, uh, Lonnie Dogan, Lonnie Dogan, uh, Brian Ferry, but then like Elvis, uh, Abba, uh, Pete Seeger, and the Weavers, uh, Frank Sinatra, Nat King Cole. So they all kind of, uh, you know, picked up on his sort of themes or his sound, or sometimes just like redid his own songs. Um, Can I, um, so when we were chatting before recording, um, you said the last name Ledbetter, right? And I'm, I'm like a pretty big Pearl Jam fan, not a freak, but like, I like Pearl right, Jam. Right, yeah. And that immediately made me think about Yellow Ledbetter, like one of the most yeah. beautiful, like, uh, kind of late 90s rock songs, yeah. right? Um, so, you know, uh, you can see there just subtly, like the song is not about this particular musician, but um, you can see there another like hearkening back. So like those names you listed it made me think like those are just probably the people that mentioned it in an interview or something or mentioned it to somebody and said that this is a direct like influence, but there must be like scores of other musicians who would also point to this. uh, Yeah. Yeah. So why I'm, why I'm starting uh, with with, uh, Ledbetter, um, you know, Mr. Ledbetter is that probably one of the most influential grunge, um, you know, formations um, actually, uh, you know, came out and said that uh, Lead Belly was a huge influence. And I'm talking about Nirvana. Oh, really? That's interesting. So uh, Nirvana actually uh, played uh, one of their songs, uh, Where Did You Sleep Last Night? Uh, ah, I love yeah, that song. on the MTV Unplugged in New York. It's such so like That's such a heart-wrenching song. Yeah. Um, Kurt Cobain famously tried to buy one of Lead Belly's guitars. Uh, hmm. which is kind of interesting. But then Kurt Cobain in his notebooks uh, listed uh, The Last Sessions Volume 1, which is a Lead Belly album, as one of the top 50 albums that most influence Nirvana's sound. Hmm. And uh, you were also mentioning that uh, he played a 12-string guitar, right? He did. He played a uh, 12-string guitar. He played a uh, lap steel guitar, uh, piano, and accordion. That's so crazy. he was like a... And sang, obviously. Yeah. So he was like a well-rounded... And a lot uh, of the musicians back in this time, because so he was active, what, in like the 10s and 20s? Is, is, yeah. Is so that what they said? Or, I can't remember. I think you might have mentioned it. but Yeah, so like a lot of his uh, stuff is from um, the late 10s, 20s, 30s. Uh, he does have some stuff that, um, here, well, let me go through it. So the sure. Library of Congress recordings, uh, and that was made uh, by John and Alan Lomax uh, between 1934 and 1943. Um Lead Belly had uh, six um, records in that series. Um, the Folkway recordings, uh, those were done by Moses Ash from 1941 to 1947. Uh, there's three um, albums with Lead Belly in there. And the Smithsonian Folkways uh, released uh, more of his stuff um, in the 80s. Those were recorded mm, somewhere in the 30s. Yeah, and um, that folk waves, that's, um, that's a good thing to Google, actually. Yeah. I saw that on a, a few of the uh, videos that I was looking for my part as well, actually. And uh, there's a great live recording of Lead Belly, and it's called Lead Belly Recorded in Concert at the University of Texas, Austin. And that happened in June of 1949. And that was released like in the 1970s by Playboy Records. <laughs> Wow, yeah. that's kind of random. <laughs> it is a, a little random. So, um, um, But there, there is a song in particular that I want yeah, to talk to sure. you about. 
and it's uh, Lead Belly's rendition of uh, Down by the Riverside. Now, oh, okay. Down by the Riverside goes by a few other names. Uh, it can also go by Ain't Gonna Study War No More or by Gonna Lay Down My Burden. It's a spiritual song, has roots in the American Civil War. Uh, it was first published in 1918, an album uh, in Plantation Melodies, a collection of modern, popular, old-time Negro songs of the Southern uh, that uh, Southern Chicago and Roadhaven Company uh, put that out. Um, the song was first recorded by the Fisk University Jubilee Quartet in 1920, and it was published by Columbia in 1922. Now, Columbia is going to come up again and again in these early histories of what I consider political or protest songs. Oh, really? I, I had no idea. That's actually kind of, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, and there's a whole history of Columbia uh, Records, um, you know, buying up the rights to a lot of um, Southern uh, black artists uh, and then not paying them and doing a whole bunch of other stuff. So, like, there's a whole history of Columbia that could be done mm -hmm. as well. Um, so down by the riverside has lots of pacifist imagery in the song. It is a pacifist song. So, you know, like, uh, the song kind of opens up with going to lay down my sleep head, uh, down by the riverside, down by the riverside, down by the riverside, going to lay down my burden down by the riverside. Uh, and then the chorus is, I ain't going to study war no more, study war no more, ain't going to study war no more. Mm -hmm. And it's really an ode. I think lead belly was saying, um, you know, we, we got to stop this shit, right? Mm. Uh, mm. Lay down your guns, stop fighting, move on with stuff. And um, when was his um, recording sort of come, came out on this song? Like when did this come out? Well, he, he would play the song frequently and mm. he would play it throughout his career. So it was one mm. of his like more memorable songs for so, him to so play. So like right at the time when it had its first recording. Yeah, basically yeah. he, you know, he would come out with it. And look at that time, 1918. What happened in 1918? Is the end of World War One, yeah. <laughs> and uh, this is probably why they are singing pacifist songs. Now, interestingly, the refrain "Ain't gonna study war no more" is a reference to a quotation found in the Old Testament, and that quotation reads, uh, "Nation shall not lift up sword against nation; neither shall they learn war any more." And mm. it occurs twice in the in the Bible, in Isaiah two four and in Micah four three. Mm. Yeah, and. Um, I think those are two passages that Quakers would be drawing on. And there's uh, definitely a connection of anti-war pacifism with Quakers. And that's like probably an episode that we're, we're not able to do. No, we, but, can't, we um, can't do that one as but well. But it is interesting. Something worth, you know, Googling and learning more about. So let's listen to a little snippet of that song. Sounds good. So the next uh, kind of figure in our history that I want to focus on is Mammy Smith. Uh, she was born at Mammy Robinson in 1883. She died in 1946. She was uh, from Ohio uh, and then died in somewhere in New York. 
uh, probably Staten Island. Um, so her career kind of starts as uh, a 10-year-old uh, touring with the White Act, the Four Dancing Mitchells. And then later as a teenager, uh, she joined the Salem Tut Whitney Smart Set. Uh, she left the Tut Brothers in 1913 to start singing in clubs in Harlem. And, and then she married William Smitty Smith, a singer. Um, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a great, that's a great old timey name. Eh? <laughs> Smitty Smith. Smitty Smith. Um, so, call me Smitty. <laughs> so Mammy's, uh, career kind of starts, uh, in 1920 when she recorded, uh, that thing called love and you can't keep a good man down. And she recorded these for okay records and okay records was later bought by Columbia or was a subset of Columbia. So again, we see yeah, know, Columbia, Columbia eh? coming in. Yeah, um, and, um, it was the first recording by a black blues singer. Uh, the musicians, however, were all white. Okay, and she's the singer. She she sings. Yeah. Okay, and the first black um, singer recorded female black singer. Yep. Oh, female. Okay. Yep. Oh wow, wow, it, that's quite a that's a some uh, that's a name that just lost to history. Yeah. yeah well, like, there you go. Um, so she carries on and records another album, uh, written by Perry Bradford, including Crazy Blues. It's all right for you if you don't get it. Taint my fault of mine. And, uh, and the, awesome. the, those were okay, uh, okay records as well. Now that record sold a million copies in wow. less than a year. Wow. That's, hugely, that, hugely successful. That's interesting. And this would be sort of the mid twenties, um, the buying power of like that, that, that must've been one of the first sort of decades, the twenties. I never really thought about this just off the top of my head where like people were buying records for like home play. Well, yes. Like that must've been like a thing. That, yeah. uh, but it also coincides with a sharp increase in the popularity of what was termed race records. So it was singers of African-American descent, uh, singing about, uh, topics, um, that were, you know, true to their existence generally from the South. So slavery, uh, being poor, uh, being a woman, being a prostitute, uh, going to jail, these sorts of mm. themes. And those records were highly, highly influential with the African-American population, but then gained increasingly popularity with uh, white listeners as well. That That's really interesting, the gaining popularity. It reminds me of um, uh, slave narratives when they um, came out, I think, in the late 1800s, like right, yeah. um, all these books of uh, former slaves uh, yep. writing about their experiences. And uh, same sort of deal. When Uncle Tom's Cabin came out, actually, that's when there was like a spike in popularity of these slave narratives. And you see, like, you know, obviously it's important to the African American community, first and foremost. But then you see whites like slowly taking it in. And I imagine the first people who read it, it was like sort of a curiosity. So, so the first people who listened to these records might have been, uh, yeah. might have been a bit of curiosity, but sometimes that's what it takes. Maybe, yeah. Now, um, because of the historic significance of uh, her albums, Crazy Blues was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1994, and it was selected for preservation at the National Recording Registry of the Library of Congress in 2005. Took a little while. Uh, she was billed the Queen of Blues. Um, wow. Yeah, and we, you know, Mammy like, Smith is a never household heard of name. Her. But uh, she was one-upped not that long later by someone who you've probably heard, mm. Bessie Smith. Oh, and okay. Bessie Smith was called the Empress of the Blues. Uh oh. So a little bit of a, a, <laughs> a rivalry. Bit of a rivalry. I, I thought you were going to say Billie Holiday, but that's a little bit in the future. Uh, a little bit in the future. <laughs> yeah. uh, so if um, if Mammy Smith is the Queen of Blues, uh, I want to talk about um, the Mother of Blues, Ma Rainey, 
or uh, her born Gertrude Melissa Nix Pridget. Gertrude? Gertrude. Yeah, Gertrude. sorry. Gertrude. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, We're all friends here, Phil. We, 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 can, uh, we can see why her stage name would have been Ma Rainey. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> uh, so Ma Rainey was born either in 1882 or in 1886. Uh, kind of, you know, hard to document uh, some of these things. She was born in Alabama, Russell County, or in Columbus, Georgia. Mm. Again, some disparities. Uh, she died at the age of 53 in 1939 uh, in Georgia. Uh, she began performing as a young teenager, became known, uh, became known as Mam Rainey after she married Will Rainey in 1904. Uh, she toured with Rabbit Food Minstrels, and they formed their own group after that, Rainey and Rainey, assassination, Assassinators of the Blues. Um, so, minstrels, though, that, that is something that we should explain. Do you know what minstrel is? Go for it. Um, minstrels, correct me if I'm wrong, and please do, um, but those were predominantly uh, African-American acts. Right, like um, performers, yeah. and um, sometimes they would be often, probably more often than not, uh, they were kind of like a sideshow uh, at some sort of fair. Um, but then there was also like these are the only opportunities that African Americans had to perform. Yeah, so. yeah. So uh, her first recording was made in 1923, and over the next five years, she made over 100 recordings, including uh, Boo Boo Wivel Blues in 1923, Moonshine Blues again 1923. And CC Rider, and that's what uh, we're listening to right now. Oh, cool! And how CC Rider is spelled is S E E S E E Rider. Now that song has been taken up as the single letters C dot C Rider uh, by a lot of other bands, and uh, I'll, I'll get into that in a second. Um, now, what's what I find interesting, and here's the connection to social science. Um, Scholar Angela Davis, mm-hmm. uh, we've heard of her. Yeah, for sure. So she notes, um, Prove It On Me, which is another uh, one of um, Ma Rainey's songs, is a cultural precursor to the lesbian cultural movement of the 1970s, which began to crystallize around the performance and recording of lesbians firming songs. Mm. Now, the history of this song supposedly comes from uh, queerculturalcenter.org. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure if it's documented anywhere else, but it's a, of an incident in 1925 in which Rainey was arrested for taking part in an orgy at her home involving women Ooh. in her course. So, "Prove It On Me" uh, is, um, you know, a song hmm. about the presumed lesbian behavior, um, and one of the the lyrics in it is, um, "It's true I wear a collar and a tie, talk to the gals, just like any old man." Hmm. So, you know, little little innuendo. Yeah, uh, there. Oh, that's awesome. I, I've again, like, this is why this episode is uh, so interesting. Like, already, like, three uh, three artists I've never really heard of. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. like, we can again, we've tied. And kind I like of... that you're hitting the, some of the first. You know, like we we talked about like the first African American uh, female singer uh, recorded, and now it's uh, uh, let's say um, sexually liberated and yeah. um, possibly lesbian because it, it was it was the twenties, right? That was the decade of. Um, the first summer of love. Well, exactly. <laughs> and both artists have uh, kind of more contemporary connections, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, Lead Belly to Nirvana, right. yeah. um, CC Ryder. Lead Belly to apparently everybody. <laughs> yeah, appar- apparently everyone. Um, so, the, this song, uh, CC Ryder, has been recorded in different renditions uh, by the likes of uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, Ray Charles, Chuck Berry, Janis Joplin, uh, Old Crow Medicine Show, Cher, The Who. Uh, so in 2004, the original Matt Rainey recording received a Grammy Hall of Fame award. 
and Martin Scarsozzi. 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 Credited the song with stimulating his interest in music. So um, it, far-reaching, far-reaching uh, recording. Um, and for- you see, like when I was also googling around and YouTubing, um, a lot of artists, um, more contemporary artists. Um, do covers of these and it's not like oh i'm gonna go make a couple of bucks off of this cover it's more like there were so few recordings of these and the what recordings existed might have been lost you know in the sands of time um so a lot of these um covers are actually artists doing homage to these uh, influential artists in the past right uh so i have one more and i think it's going to uh, blend in nicely to what you've prepared for us matt cool. uh, i want to talk about elizabeth cotton uh, in particular, one uh, of her songs called Freight Train. Now, um, feminism as an ideology puts patriarchy at its core. Okay, that's kind of like a, a known kind of statement about feminism. Yeah, you're not um, going out on the limb there. So, Elizabeth Cotton uh, is kind of like the unlikely feminist hero. All right, oh, so okay. as a little girl, she played guitar. She was a lefty, uh, and there's some videos of her playing uh, this extraordinary song, Freight Train on a right-handed guitar and the strings are strung uh, for a right-handed person, but she's playing it left-handed. So I have she, She's like playing it upside down. Playing it upside down. And I have left-handed. no idea how she uh, learned to play chords that way, but uh, she did and it sounds fantastic. Um, but her history is, a, is an interesting one. So uh, she's from North Carolina, but she spent most of her adult life as a maid. Uh, so she was cleaning houses uh, for, um, you know, a job basically is bat breaking work. Um, but given her race, so she was an African-American, the position carries, uh, you know, different levels of discrimination, different levels, um, of basically kind of like servitude. Yeah. And like her race and gender, uh, well, exactly. like coupled together, like intersectionality, I guess you could say. Um, but so she's got like compounding, uh, discrimination, like on top of it. Right. Um, but you know, in a, you know, interesting series of events uh, or coincidences um, she was uh, discovered by the uber folky family the Seegers. oh really and oh wow so that included pete oh cool. so <laughs> a little connection to our own podcast there. well a little bit uh and seeger composed some of cotton's songs like um and actually kind of you know got her career got it off the ground probably yeah. yeah oh that's so, really cool so, uh, so yeah, while working, Seager. so while serving in the Seeger house, so yeah. let's, let's remember. Oh, she was oh wow. I, I might've missed that. <laughs> she, she was a household maid for the oh. Seegers. Oh. She became part of the folk revival of the early 1960s. Um, now, isn't that really interesting? So the house that she was in was actually Mike Seeger's house. It's so like, it is interesting that like, yes, Pete Seeger, like sort of like launched her career and like took her under his wing kind of thing. Um, but she's probably still had to do like made probably jobs. It wasn't just like, Hey, we'll put you on the payroll. Like, uh, like Puffy would do or something no, like no, that. Yeah, like, exactly. like they actually probably still made her do maids, made stuff. Wow. Yeah. So, um, so she was actually <laughs> serving in Mike Seeger's home. Uh, and, um, Mike Seeger is Pete Seeger's half brother, but who also played, um, music. So he played the otter harp, the banjo, the fiddle, uh, the guitar, a mouth harp, a mandolin. That sort of stuff. They all played like they a all, million instruments. Hey? Well, they're, yeah, they're like, like basically uh, classically trained, whether uh, they got formal education or not. They're like, yeah, they can play anything. Yeah, they're, exactly. they're like real musicians. Exactly. 
Um, now, the song that we're about to listen to, uh, Freight Train, has been redone uh, over and over again. It was originally recorded uh, in 1956, um, but famously is Beatles cover version of the song that never quite existed. So the, 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 the story to it is um, found in the complete Beatles chronology. And what happened there was that they were kind of warming up, they were playing all these songs, you know, just kind of folk songs to warm up and that kind of stuff. And they started playing Freight Train and Paul McCartney stopped everyone. Huh. And then, for, so they played like the first 10 seconds or whatever, and then he just stopped from everyone from playing that song. Mm-hmm. So there's a snippet of it that exists. It's rumored to have been recorded but never released. Um, so the original recording... Uh, was played like in the background of like some Beatles recording session and that's one of the only known like recordings of this original recording? No, no, we have the original recording. What I'm saying is that the, the Beatles would have covered it. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, and that's, um, that is actually kind of an interesting point. Um, until only like a couple of years ago, I kind of really understood like, the blues connection in a lot of these like so-called classic rock bands like the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, um, shit, even Pink Floyd. Um, Many artists in this uh, period that I'll be talking about were heavily influenced by these early blues musicians. Right, yeah. So that's, uh, that's kind of where I'm going to leave you off, is oh. these links between uh, the 20s, 30s, 40s, yeah. into the present. But let's, uh, let's get into your stuff by listening to a little bit more Freight Train. Okay. Okay, thanks very much, Phil. That's um, a lot of uh, interesting names people I've never heard about before, and um, that kind of brings us up to the end of World War II, leading yeah. into the 50s. So um, the 50s, I don't have much on it, and uh, the first song that I'm going to play is actually was originally recorded in the mid-30s, so <laughs> we're going to okay, jump around a little sure. bit, but I think the listeners can handle it. Um, so I think just a little bit of context, because to understand what was being um, 
um, politicized in the 60s. You kind of have to know what the 50s were, what was going on in the 50s. And a lot of this is actually just going to be on like America or North America. A lot of like the musicians, they're all Americans. So. Right, yeah. Um, so in the 50s, um, a lot of the protest songs and, and political music was around anti-nuclear weapons um, uh, songs and also um, basic civil rights. Like you start, uh, you're seeing a lot of these gospel songs um, getting uh, re-recorded um, by artists in the 50s. And then also, as always, women's rights. So any um, female singer is going to talk about women's issues, um, but then also like very quite political uh, music and a lot of like underground jazz and, and stuff like the beatniks. Um, so that was kind of the underground culture was the beatniks. Um, and Within these underground cultures, a lot of these different sort of like, we'll call them social categories for a lack of a better term. So like different races, genders, and, and whatnot um, can kind of come together in a safe space. And uh, so a lot of um, the music in the 50s uh, was, as it was in the 30s and the 20s, influenced by African-American uh, culture and African-American musicians, actually quite literally, and sounds from those communities, right? So um, that's kind of what was going on in the 50s. Um, I'll um, kind of like talk about civil rights because I think a lot of the music is related to it. Um, so in the 50s, the, um, the political leadership of the 60s was um, kind of having their political awakening in the 50s. So Martin Luther King, when the um, first Civil Rights Act was passed in America in 1957, was 28 years old, and he was just sort of getting his start as like a political uh, leader. Um, a lot of, um, so Brown versus the Board of Education, so that was school right, yeah, the segregation, case, yeah. was 1954. Rosa Parks was uh, 1955. Uh, the lunch counter protest in Greensboro, uh, North Carolina at the Woolsworth uh, was in 1960. Um, so what I wanted to play just to kind of kick it off is the song that everybody should know and hear is uh, Strange uh, Fruit by Billie Holiday. Southern trees bear strange fruit Blood on the leaves and blood at the root Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze Strange fruit hanging From the poplar trees So I picked that song because it's uh, quite recognizable and the uh, message behind it is like just stirring, you know, it's, it's uh, quite powerful. Um, so Strange Fruit was uh, recorded by Billie Holiday 
in uh, 1939, so like the first time she performed it. Um, but it's based on a poem that was published in 1937. So it's um, quite interesting that it was um, turned into music like quite quickly. Yeah. Like sometimes they will reach back decades to get these poems and things. So um, uh, it's um, quite obviously the imagery of it. Strange Fruit is about lynchings in the South and Jim Crow laws. So um, I don't know if you, you want to talk about how um, the Jim Crow laws uh, um, in the 30s and the 20s kind of came in. No, like, I don't know. We I guess that's a whole nother episode as yeah, well. Like, so. we should do the 50s, but like, for, uh, whatever. Like, it's kind of hard I, to I, do. I mean, I, I might be getting ahead of ourselves, but it certainly sounds like it's a turbulent time. Um, yeah, we should States. talk about the context. That's what I'm trying to get at, I believe, like the civil rights context. Of yeah, the it's a turbulent time. Yeah. Uh, the times are a changing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's a good lead-in, actually. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. Um, yeah, so I also selected uh, Sam Cooke's uh, The Times Are Changing. Um, so we can play that right now. I was born by the river In a little tent Oh, and just like the river I've been running Ever since It's been a long So uh, A Change Is Gonna Come uh, was recorded in uh, 1964. Um, so if we go back to like what was happening with civil rights law at that time, it was like right in the middle of uh, Martin Luther King um, and all the passages of legislation. So I'll just rattle them off, uh, the dates off again quickly for you. So in, uh, as I said, 1957 was the first civil rights law. Um, 1964, the same year this song was released, um, was the civil rights law that was around um, uh, race, sex, and religious discrimination around jobs. And and uh, it was a bit more of a broader uh, law. The 57 one didn't really take well, like states resisted and things. Um, and then in 1968 um, was the Fair Housing Act and the Voter Rights Act was in uh, 1965. So it's all right in within like a three, four year uh, time frame. Um, so... Obviously, everybody knows Martin Luther King. Um, and if you look at uh, images of the marches on Washington, you'll see um, basically white faces in, in, the, um, in the crowd. Um, so we mentioned Pete Seeger already. Um, I just sort of discovered Pete Seeger, honestly, in the last like few weeks. Um, so I picked a Pete Seeger song to play for us. Um, it's called uh, We Shall Overcome. 
And then um, I also want to combine it with another recording that will kind of play into it if I can. All right, we'll listen to uh, both of them. Both of them, and then we'll back come back. 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 Yeah. with students and others behind jail bars singing it. We shall overcome. Sometimes we've had tears in our eyes when we joined together to sing it, but we still decided to sing it. We shall overcome. No, before this victory is won, some will have to get thrown in jail some more, but we shall overcome. Don't worry about us. Before the victory is won, some of us will lose jobs, but we shall overcome. Before the victory is won, even some will have to face physical death. But if physical death is the price that some must pay to free their children from a permanent psychological death, then nothing shall be more redemptive. We shall overcome. Before the victory is won, some will be misunderstood and called bad names and dismissed as rabble-rousers and agitators. But we shall overcome. And I'll tell you why. We shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. We shall overcome because Carlisle is right. No lie can live forever. We shall overcome because William Cullen Bryant is right. Truth crushed to earth will rise again. We shall overcome because James Russell Lowell is right. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future. Behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. We shall overcome because the Bible is right. You shall reap what you sow. We shall overcome. Deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome. And with this faith, we will go out and adjourn the councils of despair and bring new light into the dark chambers of pessimism. And we will be able to rise from the fatigue of despair to the buoyancy of hope. And this will be a great America. We will be the participants in making it so. And so as I leave you this evening, I say, walk together, children. Don't you get weary. There's a great camp meeting. Okay, so we're into the 60s, right in the middle of the 60s. The Vietnam War started in 1965, and it officially ended in 1975. That was, to date, the longest uh, conflict in American history. And I would say it was like their first combat loss since the War of 1812. So it was, the, 1975 is like where we're going to cut this off today, but uh, we're at 1965 in the start. So 
Well, um, when you say uh, 1960s, uh, even early 1970s, the name that comes to my mind is Dylan. Oh, okay. Bob Dylan, yeah. Uh, now, uh, you know, maybe the story isn't so uh, hidden anymore, but Dylan never actually wanted his songs to be protest or political songs. Yeah, he, he, he I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, actually. he, he uh, you know, would continually refute the label, uh, saying, you know, no, I, I just make music. Uh, I, did, I don't get political. Uh, but yet the left and the anti-war movement of the 1960s, early 1970s, uh, the labor movements uh, picked up his songs and continue to pick up his songs as rallying calls uh, for their efforts, right? And it's interesting that that's a perfect example of like where the artist doesn't intend the song to be political. Exactly. The uh, social actors take it on and make it political. They define it themselves. But uh, that's not what we're listening to. We're listening to something else. Uh, mm. It sounds like Buffalo Springfield to me. Yeah, it's Buffalo Springfield. It's like um, a lot of people think, uh, I think Platoon uh, uh, made this song like popular for like people of my my age. It, it, I might be wrong about that. But for me, this song reminds me of the Vietnam War. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like you just imagine like a, an attack helicopter coming by. or like, Wasn't that, uh, was it Saving Private Ryan? Ooh, maybe. There was a movie where this song was uh, played over top of mm. some some war scenes. I'm going to find out and throw that in the show notes because there's something right, in the back of my memory that is hearkening. But um, this song is actually a. It was released in 1965, um, which is quite early for the uh, the sort of anti-war uh, protests and the original attention of the artist Buffalo, uh, the writer in Buffalo Springfield, um, was to write about this curfew that was imposed on the Sunset Strip. Well, what, what, what kind of curfew? It was like. It was like an anti-loitering um, 10 p.m. curfew. So when the like Whiskey Go-Go and other um, clubs like this, like that would become very influential later in the 60s, um, started, you know, getting going, um, the city wanted to just sort of cut down on these uh, these young people. And honestly, it was, um, yeah, it was. So the song's original intention was to is actually about that curfew, but okay. it was taken up as like the typical. Vietnam War song. Neat. So this is Leslie Gore. Um, this is kind of the big feminist anthem. This is, um, it, I think when I was researching this in a couple of different places, it was like for like 30, 40 years, this one just had a run of being the feminist song. Uh, when it was, what, what year are we talking about here? Um, I think uh, 1963 was when it was released. Um, so it's all about, you know, I think the lyrics are quite obvious, but yeah. it's basically like, don't put me out as like a trophy. You can't tell me what to think. Um, don't tell me what to sp say. 
Um, so it's a real good, like I found when I was listening to it with my wife this morning, um, like I just wanted to like scream out the lyrics. It was, it's like a re- yeah, good rage yeah. screaming kind of singing song. <laughs> yeah. I, I love it. Um, so I'm, I was really fa- happy I found this. Um, so, so at this time, obviously you're having the baby boomers graduating from university or entering the workforce. Um, and women, uh, obviously wanted to enter the workforce as well. Um, so there's this kind of push and pull, like pulling them back to the so-called like housewife kind of model, uh, versus, uh, women wanting to enter the workforce. So this is like second wave feminism sort of is taking off and it's like, the big spirit of second wave feminism, obviously this is like a way bigger topic than I'm going to encapsulate here, but it's like anything a man can do, I can also do. Like it, it was like an equality between the sexes is how I'd explain it to like a first year undergrad class or something. Um, so there are so many more uh, female singers that I wanted to play here. Um, as I said, my mom kind of raised me on these like strong female vocalists. So like I had like 20 I wanted to play in here. So this is almost just like, like the start of of uh hopefully like interest in in some of our listeners so so there's so much more to say about women and gender um and probably we'll do another episode on it i think that's yeah i think uh if we could get someone in uh maybe a woman to talk about it i think ideally yeah (laughs) Yeah, Uh, that would be ideal yeah uh but yeah maybe someone could uh you know if you are an expert in female protest musics, uh, oh, perfect! You yeah. know it would be fantastic to hear from you. Yeah, I would love a, I would love a schooling in it. Like I, because I only just hear these sort of these anthems or the very well known ones. Um, so like I would really enjoy that as well. Yeah, that would be great. Um, so what do you have, uh, what do you have up next for? Us? Yeah, for sure. So what we'll play right now is uh, Curtis Mayfield. Uh, People get ready. Um, this is kind of bringing us back to uh, race relations. This one is actually an early one from Curtis Mayfield. I think it's from his first album. It was released in 1965, and um, I don't know. It was just sort of. It just sounds good. Matt, uh, that last one doesn't sound 
entirely a lot like what we've been listening to or what we think is a protest song. It's like a lulling, soothing. Yeah. It's very, yeah. I could go to sleep listening to that. Yeah. It's like, um, I played it because, or I included it because it's like political soul. Right? Yeah. That's what it and, is. And, um, soul. Curtis Mayfield had a long career too, like well into the seventies and early eighties. Um, but I love that opening, uh, line, uh, a train of coming. You don't need no baggage. Just get on board. Just get on board. Yeah. So Even it's like, this I, is a movement for everyone. So yeah. like, look at, like we, in, we included everyone in this, yeah, it's but like, we uh, just scratched the surface. It, it feels like uh, he's embracing us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Embraced. That's Curtis Mayfield, man. It's like, uh, his voice is like a nice big warm nice hug. Nice big hug. Yeah. <laughs> so I would, uh. You know, just like to thank you for putting together all that early yeah, history. I had a lot of fun with that. Yeah, this was really, uh, this was really cool. I had a blast listening to all the songs last night and uh, just grooving. And, and we're uh, we're gonna have to do part two. That yeah, picks oh, up, definitely. Uh, from the nineteen seventies onto the present, if we can. Yeah. There's a lot there though. But, yeah. Uh, and I think a lot of these episodes, these first episodes on these big topics, are like they're almost like outlines. Yeah. Like these are just uh, surface scratchers, but yeah. um, I would also like to go back to early blues. I mean, yeah, uh, I know, you know, there's, it, it's so foundational. I'm glad that we were able to talk a little bit about it today. Yeah. Uh, it's so foundational to everything else. And when we can see those clear connections mm. um, of where, you know, these songs get picked up get uh, re re uh, thought of, or sometimes even just explicitly, you know, stolen. Uh, there's something to be said about the act of uh, plagiarizing and, you know, a, bl- a black uh, African-American singer from, you know, the early 1900s, uh, taking their song, not paying the rights, uh, running with it. There's a story there. Oh, I want to hear really... about Columbia. Like that, that's yeah. a big one. And I think you're yeah. hinting at like Led Zeppelin as well. <laughs> um, but uh, there's a lot to get into there. But uh, before yeah. we let you all go well yeah before we let oh, you all yeah, go i'm gonna i'm gonna tell everyone how they oh, can get a sure. hold of us uh if you are an expert in this field or if you have questions or concerns for us you can reach us on twitter at the underscore sim underscore pod you can email us at semi-intellectual at gmail.com our website is thesim.podbean.com we are on itunes we're on stitcher we're on google play we're on your podcatcher of choice uh send us some ratings and reviews let us know what you thought of our protest and political songs part one yeah, send us some playlists as well. And uh, before we all let you go, I would be remiss if I didn't play my mom's favorite band, CCR, and the song you've all been waiting for, Fortunate Son. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Matt and Phil here. Uh, We are 
going to give you some recommendations. Yeah, for sure. It's um, it's funny when I was driving up here, I'm like, I should grab a six pack. Uh, it's been a while since I've treated Phil. Yeah. Um, especially after the baby shower. Thanks again for that, brother. Um, he picked up my whole tab. Um, so I grabbed a beer that is almost like more available in Quebec. You can always find like a six pack in the glass, clear glass bottles. And anyone from Canada knows when I say clear glass bottles, I'm talking about Sleemans. Sleemans. And the particular variety i guess you would say that i love the most um my dad uh, always drinks um the cream ale one the red label one yep, yep. um i always like the silver creek lager silver creek yeah it's got the green so my buddies back home will be like of course it's the green label one right um but for me it's like it tastes like camping but it tastes like camping the night after it's like rained and it just smells like evergreen trees it like tastes like evergreen trees it tastes like british columbia so i always drink it and it reminds me of home so what do you got for us? I uh, I'm all so it's going to be a, a double Sleeman recommendation. Oh, that was a thing. Yeah, I was like putting the six pack in the fridge, and then I was like, oh yeah. shit! And like he also likes Sleeman. I thought I was going to surprise him with that. Double Sleeman, double double. It's good. Double slam Sleeman. <laughs> uh, but mine is the Session Ale uh, Railside. Oh, the Railside. Yeah. Yeah. A newer one, right? Uh, yeah, it hasn't yeah. been out for you know as long as some of the other Sleemans. Uh, comes in a clear glass bottle again. I, I, I believe it's actually brewed from Guelph. Could, oh, okay, cool. Could be wrong on no that. No Guelph. But I think it's brewed in Guelph. Uh, the Session Ale is light, it's crisp. It has a little bit more hops mm. um, than the Silver Creek. What I like about it is it's low in alcohol. So it's like a 4, 4.3, I think. Mm. Uh, so what that means is when it's really hot outside and you know, you've just been cutting the grass, working hard labor or whatever, you can have one and you don't get that same kind of like really huge head rush that you do with some other heavier beers yeah i like being from bc um we're usually when we're outside it's like you know a nice day will be like maybe 30 right so on a day like that you would drink like a four percent like a bud yeah, light yeah. but um a lot of the beers that i came to ontario liking from bc were all kind of beers that you want when it's like 20 degrees outside right yeah. right so they're kind of like medium bodied beers yeah. um and this is what i've learned from this podcast learned from aaron about the beer that he recommended last one what was that called again uh that was the muskoka detour boom another low alcohol beer because here in the region it gets damn hot in the summer like really hot it can get up to like you know high 30s 40 yeah, yeah. um so you want something with lower alcohol content yeah uh so go Sleemans. Go Sleemans. Continue uh, making a fine product. That was a great episode, Matt. Um, you know, there's something about protest music and political songs that just bleeds in nicely to beer. So <laughs> how about we go open one of those up? We're going to throw a picture of us uh, having those beers up on Twitter. <laughs> and you can reach our site on Twitter at the underscore S-I-M underscore P-O-D. You can email us your questions, concerns, comments, or considerations at semi-intellectual at gmail.com. Our website that also includes uh, all their previous episodes is thesim.podbean.com. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, your podcatcher of choice. I'm losing my papers. Send it out. It's good to be back. Good to be back. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Hey, hey, lady.